Hey there, everybody. If you're listening on our podcast or on the internet, there are words in this episode that we have unbeeped. If you prefer a beeped version of the show, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. There are 911 calls where people are basically calling the cops on the cops. Lisa Mahone did that in September. She was on her way to the county hospital in Chicago. Her mom was dying, and the hospital called, saying that she'd stopped breathing. Had just been put on a ventilator. So Lisa had her two kids in the back, and her friend Jamal was up front. And she was just about to pull into the expressway near Hammond, Indiana, near where she lives, when a police officer pulled her over for not wearing a seatbelt. Now, the strange part about all of this is when he asked me for my license and insurance, usually the police officer get back in the car and run the license plates, run the license. He didn't do any of that. He put the information in his pocket and never took it out. What officer puts it in a pocket and not go to the uh, police car? And what's his manner like when he asks you for oh, the Oh, uh, my God. License? Well, first of all, he's moving from side to side. His body is not still. His eyes wasn't blinking. He was really acting kind of hyper. It, he wasn't acting professional. He wasn't acting like a police officer at all. Lisa had been in law enforcement herself. She'd been a corrections officer. Her dad taught criminal justice. She's got no problem with cops at all. But this one was acting so weird, she says she kept her window up. The officer, Lieutenant Patrick Vicari, didn't return our calls. According to Lisa and to a statement issued by the Hammond police, Lieutenant Vicari next asked for Jamal's ID. Jamal was sitting in the passenger seat, and Lisa says wearing his seatbelt, so it's not clear why this was necessary. Jamal didn't have his ID. According to the police statement, Jamal moved his hand below where the officer could see, and the officer started fearing for his own safety. A second officer arrived. The interaction got weird enough that Lisa turned to her 14-year-old in the back seat and asked him to do what people do these days in this situation. Jojo, get your phone out and, and video uh, to take care of The officers asked Jamal to get out of the car. Jamal didn't want to get out. And through the window, he asked for what he called a white shirt, a supervisor. Y'all got a white shirt? Look at my shoulder, dumbass. I got the bars. I got the bars. He is the supervisor. From the police perspective, Jamal is not complying. Jamal starts looking for a ticket that he'd gotten that could prove who he is. He reaches into his book bag. As soon as he went inside the bag, that's when the two officers pulled the gun out. I got my kids in the car. You drawing your weapon. It continues like this. Lisa starts to feel like these cops are not acting the way cops should. Let's get some adults here. There must be somebody above these people. And she calls 911. Hammond 911. Look, the police just pulled a gun out on me. I'm sitting in my car. And when he asked me to open the door, I am scared. The officer pulled a gun on me. I'm sitting in my car. They asked me to open the door. I'm scared, she says. Calm down. If they're pulling out a gun, are you opening? Are you are you getting are you following the officer's orders? He asked me now. He asked me to open the door. I'm scared to open the door. Why are you scared to open the door? Because he pulled a gun out. Okay, if he's pulling a gun out, maybe because he needs some fear of his life as well. No, 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 ma'am. Yeah. He cannot see in your vehicle. You she said the officer can't see in a vehicle. I said, what do you mean he can't see in the window? I said, it's broad daylight. All you need to do is follow the officer's orders. I'm scared to open the door. Do you think the dispatcher understood why you were afraid? She didn't care. She didn't care. She, 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 she never was helpful. No, I'm scared for my life. Why are you scared for your life? It's a police officer. Are you going to stop screaming and listen? Were you surprised at the tone she took with you? 
Oh, yes. I, it was unbelievable. I don't have no, no, no help. No one's going to help. Okay. Number one, if you're getting pulled over by an officer for not wearing your seatbelt, if you cooperate, it would be no problem. You would already be at the house. The Hammond police statement on this incident runs two pages, but does not mention Officer Vicari drawing his gun. It does say that the officer was afraid the passengers had a gun, though it doesn't say why this mom and her friend and two kids would make him think that. Can I ask you, do you think if it had been uh, me who had been pulled over, do you think he would have treated me that way? Oh, absolutely not. Because I'm white. Right. And you need to just get out of the car. They're not going to hurt you if you get if you listen. What do you say somebody's not going to hurt you? People are getting shot by the police. The next thing that happens, you may have seen on the news from her son's video. No, don't mess my... Now they're about to mess my... No! Oh, oh, The police bust through Jamal's window, taser him, open the door, and pull him out. He was arrested for failure to aid an officer and resisting law enforcement. Lisa says 911 hung up on her when they heard the window smash. In the end of all this, the car damaged, her kid's crying. She was handed a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. People in our country do not agree on what to make of a story like this. Lots of people hear the story or see the video, and they side with the dispatcher, right? If you're stopped by the police, just do what the officer says, it'll be fine. This is what lots of people said after Eric Garner died while being arrested in July in New York. People said it after Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson in August. Then there are lots of people like Lisa who say if you're black, it might not be fine. I was petrified. I just thought it was over. Our country's divided on this. People who think the police are on their side, people who don't. But it's complicated. Like, for instance, if you're starting to think you know which side of the divide Lisa's on, especially after that experience, well... Oh, I still trust the police. So I don't have anything against the police officers. I, they, they deserve all the respect in the world. The other day, it was a police officer on the side of the road with his blinkers on. I pulled over and asked him if he was okay. It was just this one officer, she says. He was the problem. She's now suing the city of Hammond over the incident and has learned that this officer was named in three other lawsuits for using excessive force, and all three of the city settled. For so long now, there's been this conversation or debate, I don't know what you want to call this, about policing and race and people being targeted. And whenever it comes up, it seems to split very quickly into a kind of my side versus your side sort of thing. In these last few months, we've been talking about this stuff amongst ourselves here in the radio show staff and researching and reporting in different parts of the country. And we have found some things that surprised us about policing and how complicated and difficult it is and about how hard it is to sort out the part that race and racism play in all kinds of incidents. And we found ways that racism seems undeniable. Anyway, we've discovered things that made us see some of this differently, and we want to share that with you. This week and next, we have found so much of this, we actually couldn't fit it into one episode. So from WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on just one police department, a police department with a troubled history. And we're going to tell the story of the chief who was trying to change that and why it is so hard to change certain things. Brian Reed tells the story. When Chief Ed Flynn took over the Milwaukee Police Department in 2008, he was coming into one of the most segregated cities in America, a city that sends enormous numbers of black men to prison. 
Wisconsin sends the highest percentage of black men to prison of any state in the country. And in Milwaukee, that means more than half of black men in their 30s and early 40s have been to prison. And just to give you a sense of how bad relations got between black residents and police, in 2004, the city saw a brutal incident that some people call Milwaukee's Rodney King case, the beating of Frank Jude. Jude was an exotic dancer. He did bachelorette parties. And one night after work, he ended up at a party full of off-duty police officers. A group of about a dozen officers, all of whom were white and many of whom were drunk, surrounded Jude, who's black, and started beating him. They claimed he'd stolen one of their badges. Just like in the incident you heard about at the beginning of the show, one of the women who'd brought Frank Jude to the party decided to call 911 on the cops as they handcuffed Jude, cut his clothes off, and essentially tortured him, kicked him repeatedly, bent his fingers back, shoved a pen in his ears, causing them to bleed. Even when the dispatcher sent on-duty officers to the scene, one of them joined in the beating, stomping on Frank Jude's head, while the other officer stood by. They're saying that the two officers that just arrived in the squad got out and started beating your friend off. They're like holding them down. Eventually, seven officers were fired. Three were sentenced to over 15 years in prison. But before that, officers closed ranks. No one talked. No one knew anything. It showed the city how cops would turn the other way and protect their own, even if they saw something truly terrible. The case hung over Milwaukee for years. So this is the climate Ed Flynn was walking into when he became chief. Flynn had been in law enforcement for 35 years. He led several small city departments, Chelsea and Springfield and Massachusetts, and Arlington, Virginia. He'd served as secretary of public safety for the whole state of Massachusetts. But when the job opened up in Milwaukee, it had a special appeal. One of the attractive things for Milwaukee for me was that it had a, a very significant crime problem, uh, highly concentrated in communities that had a, an historical antipathy for their police department. That's what was attractive to you, crime and antipathy for the police? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, to me, Milwaukee represented the crux of the challenge of American policing in the 21st century. And as Chief Flynn sees it, that challenge is... Those neighborhoods that need us the most and demand our services, when they get us, get mad at us. How do we bridge that? Flynn says he's confronted this his whole career, all the way back to when he started out as a beat cop in the 70s in Jersey City. I would go to street corners, and there'd be like six black kids on a corner in an all-black neighborhood. I would always end up with a call for service saying, remember complaints about kids hanging on the corner. Go back to that corner. Okay, kids, you got to move. You're just harassing us because we're black. Okay, you see anybody else in this neighborhood? Why do you think I'm picking on you? I said, somebody called. Well, who are they? We want to know. We have a right to stand here. Point is, folks that were calling us up look just like the people that were hanging on the corner. Flint still sees this today in Milwaukee. Most of the city's crime victims are African-American, and they're the group that has the most animosity towards the police. That's not just in Milwaukee, obviously, but all around the country. So here's a problem people have been debating heatedly, especially since Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. And here's a guy who's been trying to fix the problem, to mend the relationship between black residents and the police in his city for the last seven years. He's idealistic. He's smart. He can sound very professorial, especially when he talks about the history of poverty and crime and policing. He goes in front of residents and says things like this. 
we in this police department and in the police profession know we have inherited a social history of which we can't always be proud. The police have often been in the middle of great conflict and not infrequently been agents of social control to preserve a status quo. By the way, he's not reading here. This is just how he talks. And certainly in Milwaukee in the last 40 years, you've had your own rich history, sometimes between the police and the community. So we've been working real hard at improving our relationship with neighborhoods so we had achieved some level of legitimacy. Flynn became police chief in 2008. So what's he done? How's it going? He didn't enact one single big reform. It was lots of smaller, sometimes boring stuff. He created a code of conduct, redrew the borders of police districts, shifted hundreds of officers from the citywide detective unit onto the streets, a move that wasn't popular in the department. He did a big push to work with dozens of community groups. He started this program with researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee to go into schools and teach kids in high-crime areas why police are stopping people more often in their neighborhoods, how they should behave during stops, and how officers should behave. So how would you, as a kid, feel walking in the, this area, knowing what you know now, and the police stop you? Um, I would be upset. Okay. But you should be appreciative and happy that they're doing something. As I spent time with members of the department, it was hard to pinpoint exactly what effect these changes have had. But I did get the sense that something had changed, even if it was sometimes intangible. For instance, I kept hearing certain words again and again. The most popular noun I heard, community. The most popular verb? We're here to engage and have a conversation. The officers should be marketing uh, all the opportunities to engage with us. It has helped us to become more engaged in the community. Our community engagement and the activities that we've been doing. Building police legitimacy takes place when you directly engage. Of course, police departments all over the country use these exact buzzwords. Say they're engaging more and doing community policing. But it's hard to know what this actually means. I'm sorry I threw engagement out there. I'm trying to get engaged, so no. <laughs> um, no, it's all good. It's, it's a term that you guys use, but I think that like doesn't mean a lot to the outside world. Right, right. Um, I'm on an evening shift with Sergeant Teresa Janik. She's been on the force seven years. She's worked juvenile crimes, auto thefts. She worked undercover. Now she's a supervisor, and she says it's an entirely new police department. Thank you. Squad response 3291 to the shots fired. 3217, I can respond to that as well. Can you get us just one more squad? Sergeant Janik works in District 3, a largely black area, with one of the highest crime rates in the city. At around 6 o'clock, she heads to a block where shots have been reported. So now we're, we're in the area, and we're going to try and see what we can stir up. Do you see anything going on out here, bud? Janik talks through her window to a guy on the sidewalk. He says he's been out there like five minutes. You didn't hear anything? About five minutes ago. <laughs> About five minutes ago you heard no, something? No. It's worth noting that the gunshot Janik is responding to, she didn't learn about it from a 911 call. She learned about it from something called ShotSpotter. It's new technology that Chief Flynn and several other chiefs around the country have put in place that uses sensors around the city to detect when gunshots go off and tells the cops what block they happened on. What that means, though, is that even though Janik talks to several people who say, yeah, I heard a shot, not one of them called 911. No one in the neighborhood did. Sergeant Janik says this is common. When they installed ShotSpotter, the department found out that only 17% of all the shots fired were resulting in residents calling the police. We heard it. Where do you think you heard it from? From back here. From back here somewhere? Yeah. In this lot? Mm-hmm. All right, we'll let you guys get out of here, okay? Okay. 
The Milwaukee Police Department's standard operating procedures Chief Flynn put into place include this line. Police members can be expected to make numerous contacts with the public on a daily basis. These contacts form the basis for the relationship between the department and the community. I rode on three shifts and watched a bunch of different officers. And one thing that struck me was how a single 911 call, or just a single shot fired on ShotSpotter, could quickly lead an officer to talking to a dozen people or more as they tried to figure out what happened. With this shot fired, for instance, when I was out with Sergeant Janik, there was no conclusion. They didn't find a shooter or a bullet or a casing. But still, it was an excuse for Sergeant Janik to interact with at least seven people. And it was easy for those conversations to move beyond the gunshot she was there to look into. Like with this woman who was coming out of her garage. Ma'am, did you hear anything out here? You said not hear anything? Yeah. No, I didn't. Nothing? How long have you been here? Um, I live in this building, so I was downstairs in the garage for like 10 minutes. Have you seen anything crazy on the block lately? It's always crazy stuff going on around here. Do you call? Huh? Do you call? Uh-uh, just, it's just people outside, drunk people, like, I just, you know, I mind my business. As long as I don't see anything, like, someone fighting or something like that, I'll say something, but other than that, no. Okay, can you do me a favor and call that stuff in when you see it so that we can help you out with some of the problems that are going on over here? Okay, no problem. I didn't know that you guys, you know, that you guys wanted us to call that stuff in, but I will if I yeah. see anything. If there's a problem, we want to know about it. Okay. All right? All right. Thank you. You're welcome. On one of her trips around the block, Sergeant Janik asks a man staggering outside a liquor store if everything's okay. He tells Janik that he's been robbed at gunpoint two times recently on that corner. Did you contact the police, Janik asks him. Nope, he says. Would you like to report it now? Yes. She gets two officers to come take the report for him. So, so that was engagement. We just saw engagement. I hate, now that you say that we say it all the no, time. No, it's fine, because I think I'm we just... Now I'm noticing it. <laughs> no, 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 I, you know, like that actually, I think I just finally saw what engagement was. Yeah. I know, listening to residents and actually trying to help them, it didn't strike me as revolutionary either. But Assistant Chief James Harpole, who's been with the Milwaukee Police Department for nearly 30 years, told my producer Ben Calhoun and me about this one time, before Chief Flynn, but not that long ago, when he went with an officer to a neighborhood meeting. And a number of concerns were brought to our attention, and he was writing them all down in his book. And we left the meeting, and I said, okay, so um, now what's the next step? He said, well, nothing. He said, I just keep these in my book, and if it ever comes up again, I can say, yeah, we were aware of it. I'm like, okay, that's not going to cut it for me. I said, these people expect that something's going to happen here. We can't just write it down and drive away and say we're done. we got to do something. Did you say that to him at, at the moment? And I did. did. And what did he say back to you? He seems shocked. He's like, well, that's just the way we've always done it. The cop Harpel's talking about, his whole job was to coordinate with residents. His title was community liaison officer. Contrast that with what I saw at a daily briefing in District 3. So much of it was cops discussing intel from residents and taking it seriously. They updated the captain about a meeting they'd held with people who lived near the site of a recent homicide who'd help them identify 17 nuisance properties where criminal activity might be going on. They read aloud from emails a guy sent them with the license plates of cars he saw picking up suspected prostitutes. And? One more update. If someone can help um, Dave from uh, the bakery get in touch with Gorman Properties regarding um, some windows at uh, 40th and Cherry. They're broken? Yep. Okay. In case you didn't get that, this is literal broken window policing. 
they're going to get a landlord to replace some busted glass. Three years into Flynn's tenure, it was going pretty well. Violent crimes were down, homicides were down, citizen complaints against police were decreasing by quite a bit. Then in the summer of 2011, things took a bad turn, starting with the arrest of a man named Derek Williams. One night in July, officers responded to the scene of a robbery and found Williams. He was 22 years old, black. He ran, officers chased him over a fence, caught him, handcuffed him, and put him in the back of a police car, where a camera recorded what happened next. So, what's your last name? I can't breathe. You're breathing just fine. So, believe me. So, what's your last name? I can't breathe, son. Well, you're talking about school. You're just playing games. The video is horrible to watch. Minutes go by as Williams, shirtless and in handcuffs, rides in the back seat, gasping for air. He pleads for medical attention, but the officers ignore him. This goes on for nearly eight minutes. Then Derek Williams slumps over on the seat, at which point an officer opens the door and tries to wake him up. He checks his pulse. A few minutes later in the video, you see police administering CPR. But it was too late. Derek Williams died in the back of a squad car as he pleaded for medical help. It was Milwaukee's own Eric Garner video, three years before it happened in New York. And through all the investigations, Chief Flynn defended the officers involved, and they continued on active duty. People were furious. They protested, demanded that the state press criminal charges against the officers, demanded that the chief resign. Amazingly, Flynn says when he and other commanders first watched the video, they did not foresee that reaction. Our first thought when that tape was finished was breathing a sigh of relief. Well, gosh, the cops didn't do anything to him. And of course, what we're completely missing is that an average person seeing that tape is perceiving absolutely uncaring, unfeeling officers who refuse to do anything about a man in distress. And we missed it. Flynn says part of the disconnect stemmed from the fact that the video camera was infrared so people watching it after the fact could see Derek Williams in a way the officers couldn't in the moment because it was dark. But the biggest problem, he says, is that he took for granted that the public would understand his reasoning for not disciplining the officers. You know, in hindsight, one recognizes it's difficult to explain the universe of police officers in crisis situations in how often an average officer encounters an arrested suspect who doesn't want to go to jail and wants to go to the hospital. That specific scenario happens a lot? Exactly. I can't breathe. I have something wrong with me. I have a pain. And after a while, it becomes just part of the noise of making an arrest. And officers get a little inured to it. Now, that's not something the public wants to hear the police chief try to explain when a young man just dropped dead in the back of a car. And so... You know, the, the lesson that was clear to us is if you say you can't breathe, okay, we're calling an ambulance. You changed the policy. We changed the policy. We made it mandatory. We probably tripled the number of ambulance runs for people under arrest going to jail. But we removed the officer's need to make a judgment. I think part of what upset people so much about that and, you know, what's upsetting to watch about it, I think it made people wonder why a policy is needed to have officers respond that way. 
you know, you look at this and it's kind of like, wouldn't it be basic human decency to respond to someone who's who's in distress like that or asking for help like that? And I wonder if, if you think that incident points to some kind of lack of empathy. Cops start out empathetic or they wouldn't be doing this in the first place. All right. I mean, you, you, you come to a police academy graduation, you talk to officers in training. They're dying to get out there and help people. But as the social net has frayed, cops are spending enormous amounts of times with the social problems that society's taken a walk on. And night after night after night, police officers go to the same problems for which there are no solutions. You know, uh, the people that are police officers are regular people just like you. And they have faced the same kind of long-term stresses on their equilibrium that anybody who is deployed year after year after year to Iraq and Afghanistan experiences. Happens more rapidly in a war zone, obviously, but the same dynamics are working on America's police officers every day in the streets of our cities. And they do harden themselves. They have to. One thing Flynn says he's doing to try to rebuild empathy He's trying to get cops on foot patrols, at least an hour a shift, so they can have friendly interactions with people who aren't in bad situations. Assistant Chief James Harple says cynicism is especially dangerous to cops on third shift, from midnight to 8 a.m. He worked that shift for four years, and he remembers the moment he realized he'd become jaded. It was when he got switched to second shift in the afternoons. My first day working second shift was an eye-opening experience for me. I'm driving down the street in the very same neighborhood I patrolled on third shift, and I see families, people pushing their babies, people waving at us as we were driving down the street. It shocked me. I was in shock. I had not experienced that. I realized at that very moment that the area that, that I was patrolling had an overwhelming majority of hardworking, outstanding individuals who wanted to have safe neighborhoods. Never hadn't occurred to you before, for real? Because I didn't deal with people like that. The, you know, before you even made it out of the station house, the dispatcher was sending you to the first fight, and the, everybody, you know, was drunk and blood everywhere. And so, no, it hadn't. You begin to think, are, is there anybody that's, you know, not like this? Harple says working second shift completely changed his mindset for dealing with people on the job. I asked Chief Flynn if they ever change people's shifts with this in mind, rotate cops to give them different perspectives on a neighborhood. And he said they can't because the union contract doesn't allow them to. I told him it seemed like from Harpole's story, there might be value in it. He said, yeah, there'd be value in renegotiating the contract too. Brian Reed, coming up. His story continues, and among other things, we go with Chief Flynn's officers as they try to solve a case, a shooting. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. This week and next on our show, cops see things differently, stories of policing and race. We're telling the story today of uh, Chief Ed Flynn's tenure at the Milwaukee Police Department and how he's trying to improve relations between the police and black residents. One of the challenges he faced was he wanted to start a program that would basically be Milwaukee's version of the Stop and Frisk program, which was so controversial in New York City. Stop and Frisk, of course, was uh, policemen stopping pedestrians, but in Milwaukee, people drive, so lots of the stops, traffic stops. Again, here's Brian Reed. When Chief Flynn looked at the data for Milwaukee, he saw that when officers pulled over people in high-crime areas more frequently, 
for minor violations like having a taillight out or running a stop sign, car thefts went down. Flynn believed more stops would mean fewer crimes. So he wanted to do more stops, but somehow without angering people or alienating them. I also wanted to make sure we didn't accidentally enact a poor person's tax. If I'm going to put the cops in the hot spots and say enforce traffic laws because I really want to reduce robberies and car thefts, but I'm writing everybody tickets, well, how much good did I do myself? Maybe I'm going to reduce the number of car thefts, but everybody hates us. So the order that implemented this policy said give warnings if you possibly can. The preferred outcome is a warning. The number of traffic stops in Milwaukee almost quadrupled, and the number of times officers stopped pedestrians tripled. And, like Flynn wanted, he says fewer than 20% of the traffic stops resulted in citation or arrest. Car thefts and robberies decreased, and Flynn saw an added benefit. Citizen complaints dropped, too. He thinks that's because more people were having good interactions with the cops. And there are numbers on this. A University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee study that came out last month found that more than 60% of people who'd been approached by police during traffic stops said they were satisfied with how the officer handled the interaction. But it was also during these traffic stops and pedestrian stops that one of the biggest scandals of Flynn's tenure as police chief happened. Dozens of people are now suing the department. One of them is Brandon Graham. Brandon's 25 years old. He says he started getting stopped back sometime in 2011, about three years into Flynn's push to increase stops. The way Brandon remembers it, one day he went back to a neighborhood he used to live in on the north side of Milwaukee, and his friends kept telling him how the cops in that district, District 5, had been harassing them constantly. I didn't really take it serious what they were saying. I'm thinking, like, you guys were doing something wrong to be stopped by the police. Like, if there's no police officer that's going to waste their time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where there's a lot of crime, to stop you for walking down the street. Brandon's naivete lasted for all of two hours. Sure enough, he says, that very afternoon, the cops came by. We all stopped. I have no worries. I thought they were maybe looking for someone else. And I'm sure that it's not legal for the cops just to pull up and just pat you down with no probable cause, you know? So we, we all sitting there, and they asked me my name or whatever, asked me for my ID. I'm like, okay. I give them my ID or whatever. I'm like, is there any type of problems? They tell me to shut the F up. A warning, this gets explicit. He grabbed my pants and pulled them up to almost where I was on my tiptoes. And once he did that, he rubbed his hand from the front all the way to the back, from my testicles to my buttocks, back and forth. So I'm like, what's going on? Like, I'm not understanding why this is happening. It seemed as though they were trying their best to intimidate us and how they were talking to everyone and and not waiting for an answer. And like I said, it's only the first time. Soon after, Brandon ended up moving back to that neighborhood, and the random stops continued in the same style as that first one. Sweet, how many times has this happened to you? This happened almost every single day, like a couple of years, every day. One night, I spent time with Brandon and some of his friends back in District 5. Brandon doesn't live there anymore. But they got to reminiscing about officers from the neighborhood and listen to how well they knew them. It's like they're talking about old high school classmates or something. You talk about the short fat one? No, the little short white dude. He, oh, no, slim, the one, the one that slammed me all on the hood. You talking about Kopinski? No, Kopinski was kind of big. Kopinski kind of big. I'm talking about the dude that's like yo height. What time was it? When Late it happened? night. Oh, that's probably Tamara Letterman. 
Fag was probably in the green car then that night. Cause Fag didn't Fag used to be in a white detail car? Yeah, Vag, that's the car he pulled in, in the driveway in, my auntie driveway. They're saying Vag, short for Officer Michael Vagnini, the most notorious cop in the district at the time, and maybe all of Milwaukee. This is Brandon's friend P, remembering the night Officer Vagnini followed him into his aunt and uncle's driveway. My life walked all in her house. It's two something in the morning. Walk all in the house. Search the house. Walk in my uncle's room. He just getting out the shower. Butt ass naked. Oh, yeah, man. Put some clothes on. Fuck out of here, nigga. This ain't your motherfucking house. Well, nigga, get the fuck out. And my uncle snapped on my life. He said, oh, Do you got a search warrant? He said, let, let me put my clothes on. Let me call your sergeant and see if this okay. It was this officer, Michael Vagnini, who Brandon says was responsible for the worst night of his life. He and some friends were in the car, and a group of officers pulled them over. In court documents, the police say it was because they ran a stop sign and were missing a side mirror. They asked Brandon and his friend to get out of the car. One officer pat Brandon down, then another. Again, Brandon's description is graphic. Vagnini then was saying, like, I'm not a rookie, and then searched me. He stuck his hands in my boxers from the back first around my rectum area and then reached around the front and kind of like moved around my testicles. And the whole time, I'm having to hold my hands up. And every time I drop my hands, he'll threaten me, you know, like, if you drop your hands anymore, I'll kick you in the forehead. The whole time, I'm I'm, I'm begging, please, Vag, you're touching my ass, you're touching my ass. Like, you have your fingers around my butthole. Like, you scratching me. You're lifting my testicles. It brought tears to my eyes because, like, it's what can I do about this? Like, when is it going to stop? And the other officers are standing right there. Brandon says Officer Vagnini then pulled out a knife and cut open the waistband of his pants, where Brandon had two bags of cocaine. The officers arrested Brandon. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor possession charge. In the criminal complaint, the police say that Brandon consented to a search of his person. There's no description of the search. Almost a year later, in 2012, Chief Flynn and the district attorney announced that they were investigating a pattern of complaints from the previous couple years about illegal searches, including illegal strip searches and cavity searches. Flynn asked any residents with information or complaints to call internal affairs. Three officers eventually pled no contest to being party to the illegal searches and were given community service. One went to jail for 20 days. Officer Vagnini pled no contest to four counts of illegal cavity searches and misconduct in public office. He was sentenced to a little more than two years in prison. For his sentencing, dozens of police officers wrote letters supporting him, saying his only crime was overzealousness in keeping the community safe from criminals. They called him exemplary, one of the best cops in the city, the kind of officer they wanted to be. But Vagnini's trial wasn't the end of it. About 60 people are now suing the department, claiming they were also illegally searched. They name at least 40 officers and allege that supervisors looked the other way or ignored complaints. Jonathan Safran, a Milwaukee civil rights attorney who represented Frank Jude, told me he'd been getting calls complaining about illegal searches for years before the chief announced his investigation. Even though he believed many of them and started to notice patterns involving specific officers, he couldn't prove the claims. Saffron says a man who contacted him 10 years ago about an illegal search called him recently and said, I told you so. Saffron says some of the people who reported this behavior to him are still in prison because of the searches they say were illegal. 
probably goes without saying, but Brandon is one of the many black Milwaukeeans who has not been won over by Chief Flynn's campaign to build trust. I asked him and his friend Rex if they could picture a scenario in which they'd ever call the cops for help. If they got robbed at gunpoint, for instance. You asked we gonna call the police? Yeah. No. <laughs> you gonna call the police, Rex? Hell no. <laughs> Hell motherfucker, no. Call the police? Chief Flynn told me when he learned about the illegal searches and the cavity searches, he was furious and disappointed. He says this was a small, isolated group of officers who slipped into a game of getting the, quote, bad guys at all costs. But he also says he's skeptical of the people coming forward now, claiming they were illegally searched and suing because of it. He called the lawsuits a cottage industry. He says the department only ever got three complaints, and they were all from drug dealers who had been frequently arrested. One thing that surprised me talking to Flynn, especially because he's such a student of history, was what he said when I asked him about the issue that's at the center of so many conversations about policing, race. At the level of cop working in the neighborhood, race is irrelevant. It's, it's just people. Flynn says that whenever there's an incident between a white officer and a black resident, people get upset and say it's racism. But he says they're missing the big picture. So, for instance, in 2011, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel did a story where a data reporter looked at police records and found that black drivers in the city were seven times more likely than white drivers to be stopped by police. In response, Flynn did a whole presentation for residents with maps and crime numbers, where he told them the same thing he told me, that the disparity isn't because of officers' bias against black residents. It's just that the majority of crimes happen in neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly African-American. And people come and say, we're shocked, shocked to find out the police are intervening so much in this neighborhood. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> of course our interventions are going to generate disparities. I mean, they're going to match the disparities of where our crimes and victims are. That may explain the statistics. But what I wanted to know was, doesn't race play a role in those interventions? Only 17% of the Milwaukee police force is black in an incredibly segregated city. I told Flynn there's evidence that race can influence the way cops deal with black residents. Some of this we're going to talk about more in next week's show. There's research about people's implicit biases, subconscious racism that can affect officers' decisions. But there's also evidence in Chief Flynn's own department, according to that Journal Sentinel story, which showed that the largest disparity between blacks and whites getting pulled over in Milwaukee didn't happen in high-crime black areas of the city, but in the two lowest-crime districts, both with predominantly white populations. The paper also found that once black drivers were pulled over, they were twice as likely as white drivers to have police search their cars, even though that didn't lead to finding more drugs or weapons. Flynn eventually said he's not trying to say race plays no role in policing. But what I am trying to say is that it does not play the role people think it does. The, av- the average reality of police working in the same neighborhoods every day or every night, any biases you build up tend to be based on a collection of experiences you've had based on the neighborhood in which you're working. And that counts for, in a practical way, more. I left this conversation not feeling like the chief was denying a reality because it was uncomfortable for him to admit it. More like he honestly didn't see reality the way many other people do and the way I expected him to. One interesting finding from that police satisfaction survey 
while black people were much less likely to say they were satisfied with the police. If they'd called the police in the last year and it went well, that disparity almost completely disappeared. If the resident initiated the contact, not the police, one positive experience could make a difference. I just want to pick it up a little bit here because one of the calls indicating that female shooting at her neighbor, so if that's the case, somebody had shot. I'm in a squad car with Officer Richard Gordy, speeding towards people who say their neighbor fired a gun at them. I'm going to tell you the story of the whole investigation of this potential shooting, because first of all, it's just a good whodunit. And more important, it's black residents who called the police for help, which, according to the survey at least, means if it goes well, could totally change how the callers feel about the police. Okay, we're rolling up on senior guys. We arrive at a small apartment building. It's around 9.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. Officer Gordy drives by the small parking area in the back to see if there are any bullet casings. There aren't. He and another officer go inside the building and talk to people in there, but no one says they heard anything. And there's nothing coming up on ShotSpotter. So Officer Gordy sits in his squad car, contemplating his next move, until suddenly a green car pulls up right behind us, and some people get out. 750. Oh, shit. What's going on? It's a young couple. Well, this morning, uh, the lady downstairs, her car was parked behind our car. And we had some to move their car so we can get out the driveway. But then she had got hostile. Okay, you don't, you guys don't have a gun in your no, house? You no, you can we, check my car. We, we ain't got, go. no, we ain't got okay. no gun. All right, all right. She got hostile. She started cussing me out. She said, motherfucker, I ain't got to move my motherfucking car. Okay. So she got mad. And I said, listen, we trying to get out the, uh, the parking lot to drop the kids off. It was like it, we had six kids with us. And she said, motherfucker, I ain't got to do shit. And she slammed the door. And she had came back out with a gun. And her kids. This guy's name is Thomas. He's with his girlfriend, Trina. Thomas says after the neighbor came out with a gun, she then threatened to kill him, backed him down the hallway and out the back door where Trina was waiting in the car with the kids. So we down there almost at the lot and she shot at us by the car. She said, boom. And the kids outside. She said, boom. Where were you at when she shot at you? We was in the car. I hopped in the car because she pointed at me again. I where said, did she point at you with the she gun? She pointed it at me. She's standing in the doorway like this. She pointed the gun at me like okay. this. Officer Gordy told me that they frequently get calls claiming there's a gun when there really isn't just because people know the cops have to respond more quickly to that. Since there was no evidence of a shot fired, Gordy thought that might be what was going on here. So he separates Thomas from Trina and takes him alone into the police car. You don't have a gun? No, I don't have a gun. Okay. Not, I work at Walmart. Okay, listen to me real quick here, okay? Because there's a lot going on here, okay? Um, very important that if she, if she didn't shoot at you, just tell me she didn't shoot at you. But if she did, that's fine too. But make sure you're telling the truth, the whole truth, right. not the truth. Okay, so, I said she shot at me okay, that's okay. Listen to me real quick here. All I need to know is if she did or she didn't. If she didn't, that's fine. Okay, if it's a dispute, we'll handle that. But if she really did, make sure you're telling the truth because if you're not, you'll be charged, okay? So did she or did she not? Because I'm getting ready see, to... See, see, I, I can't say she... If she shot directly at us, I'd have been hit. But no, no, did she... Did shot, she, was, she a gun shot, was, was a gun shot? Was a gun fired? The gun was I, fired. Look the at this. Was, can I show you something here? You know what shot spotter is? This detects gunshots, okay? I got no gunshots here. That's why I'm asking you. This is technology, this is satellite technology, okay? Shots fired, there's nothing here. That's why I'm asking you. The thing Gordy's not telling Thomas is that he doesn't think shot spotter covers the block we're on. 
But he doesn't tell him that because even though Thomas is the one who wanted the cops' help and says he was the victim, Gordy's trying to figure out if he's lying. He's approaching Thomas as a potential victim and a potential suspect. And it gets to Thomas. He starts to backtrack a bit with his story. I don't know if it was bullets in the gun. She pulled it and popped, you know? Did you hear a gunshot? Yes. Yes, I heard a gunshot. We was right there. She pointed the gun at me. She said, look, I'm going to kill you. Meanwhile, inside the building, other officers have found the alleged shooter, a woman named Charday. They didn't find Charday in her own apartment. She was in one down the hall. And she has quite a different story to tell about Thomas. Then he started kicking my door. He started kicking, kicking, um, kicking my door and, and shaking my doorknob. Why is he down here banging on your door? Because he wanted me to move my car. Okay. And I told him I was getting, put my clothes on, I moved my car. And he said, this bitch not moving her car, so he got to kick in my door. The guy got to arguing with my kids, calling them all kind of hoes and bitches, and he'll whoop their ass. So I was scared for my kids to go outside because no telling if a person can uh, harm my child. Okay, there is alleged that a shot was fired today here. I ain't, I ain't hear no shots. Did anyone have a gun? No, nobody had a gun. I, I, don't, I don't even think they had a gun. Is there a weapon in here? No. Do you own because, a weapon? No, I do not. I have my house searched before. You no. can search my house. So I, sure, I, it's, I, not, it's not I, about that, okay? It's about getting to the bottom of this, all right? I don't want to have to go get a search warrant and tear your house upside down here looking for a pistol. You can whether, search it now. For obvious reasons, officers are focusing on whether or not there was a gun involved in whatever happened during this dispute. Outside, the cops asked Thomas over and over, all different ways, if there'd been a gun, if he'd seen a gun, if a gun had been fired. They do the same thing with Thomas's girlfriend, Trina. Again, these are the people who ask for the cops to help them. Officer Gordy takes Trina out back to the parking lot and has her act out how it went down. They're like that, so she was like, bah. And exactly what, show me exactly where it went when you seen her fire. I, I, ain't, I ain't see that. I seen smoke come out the gun. I didn't see where Did the... you ever hear her? Did you ever hear the gunshot fire? Yeah, it was like, it was like, bah. Did you ever see a flash come out the gun? I seen like a white smoke like paw. Okay, so that would be the direction that it went? Yeah, right here. My boyfriend was standing right there. Don't you think if she fired that something here would have been hit? I don't know, you know, I, I ain't never seen no gun, so I don't know. At this point, everyone's pissed. Trina's outside complaining to Thomas about how you can't even get help from the police, how they only care if someone's dead. And inside, Charday is sitting handcuffed. She's not arrested, but in handcuffs as officers tear up her apartment, looking for a gun. Look what y'all, y'all got my baby brand new blanket on the floor. Y'all got shit all over the floor. Come on now, y'all just doing, y'all doing it reckless. Shit. Now I'm already letting y'all in my house searching. If I did have something, I wouldn't be hiding in my damn kids, in my damn kids clothes. Well, I like to believe you. But after 22 years, you'd be shocked when I found it, where I found it. As for the cops, they're having trouble figuring out the truth. I heard the supervising officer on the scene, a sergeant, whisper to Officer Gordy that he thought they should arrest both Chardet and Thomas for fighting. Almost an hour passed. Inside, the officers continued to look through Chardet's things. And then, I'm not even sure if any of the cops noticed this, a few tears began to run down Chardet's face. Not long after, in a hamper full of dirty clothes in the closet, they found a gun, a long black revolver, exactly what both Thomas and Trina had independently described. 
It had one spent bullet. The cops arrested Chardet for recklessly endangering safety by use of a firearm. Officer Gordy let her change out of her pajamas into warmer clothes, made sure her grandma was able to watch her kids, and then walked her out of the building in handcuffs. The kids are all taken care of and everything? It's okay that they're going to be with grandma? Yeah. Right. Are you crying? As all this was wrapping up, Trina called me over. She said she had something to say about the police. You see how they do us? They don't believe us. Somebody could have been dead. You feel me? They was trying to say we was a liar. I mean, now they didn't say we was a liar, but they were trying to make it seem like it wasn't nothing, you know? But when it was something, she shot at me. And my boyfriend, and five kids in the car. Trina pointed to a group of guys who'd been hanging around the block while the investigation was going on. She told me they were Chardet's people, cousins, and that Chardet had threatened that they would go after Trina and her boyfriend. That's how people end up dead. When you call the police, you're being a snitch, for real. And police got to take cautions right then and there. If they don't, then when they leave, people get killed like that. You know what I'm saying? That's what telling the police. Right. You were worried that they weren't gonna, the police weren't going to believe you, they weren't going to find a gun. And they were going to leave, and I was going to be here by myself, and they were going to start some more stuff up. I mean, it seemed like it worked out, though. Yeah, it did. Like, they just really weren't believing us until they really found the gun, you see? But that's just history anyways. These white folks, you know, they judge you on how you look. Cops need to be skeptical during investigations. It's built into their jobs. They aren't supposed to fully trust the person they're talking to. But of course, the person they're talking to can feel that. Trina and Thomas did. And it's upsetting, if you've just been shot at, to have the police come and interrogate you like you're the criminal. And on top of that, there's the history. All the times the cops haven't treated people fairly, or worse. That's always there, casting a shadow over every interaction. The cops feel like they're just doing their job the way they always do, But for Trina, it's hard not to wonder if the cops would be treating her this way if she was white. One last story. On April 30th last year, a white Milwaukee police officer shot and killed a black man named Dontre Hamilton. He was sleeping in a plaza across from City Hall in the afternoon, and an employee from a nearby Starbucks called the police. Two officers checked on Hamilton and determined he wasn't doing anything wrong. Then a different cop, the B cop for the area, Officer Christopher Manny, came and roused him and tried to pat him down. This led to some kind of altercation. According to Officer Manny and some witnesses, Hamilton grabbed his baton and hit him in the neck with it. Manny says he feared for his life. He shot Hamilton 14 times. Hamilton was 31 years old and had suffered from schizophrenia. And unlike after the death of Derek Williams, the man in the back of the squad car who couldn't breathe, Chief Lynn fired Officer Manny. Though he didn't fire him for killing Hamilton, he fired him for doing a pat-down that was against department policy and not in line with his training. Flynn says Officer Manny could tell when he approached that Hamilton was in the midst of a mental health issue, which means he should have never tried to touch him. That's rule number one when dealing with someone in a mental health crisis. And by trying to pat him down, Flynn says... Manny created the situation in which he feared for his life and ended up killing Dontre Hamilton. He was black! He was murdered! He was murdered! 
In November, after Officer Manny appealed Chief Flynn's decision to fire him, the public was given a chance to comment before Milwaukee's Fire and Police Commission. I was there. People packed into a senior center gymnasium. On the right, members of the police union, almost entirely white. On the left, Dontre Hamilton's family and supporters, largely black and brown. For an hour, Chief Flynn and the commission sat silently on stage as supporters of Dontre Hamilton berated them. They were angry that Flynn had taken six months to make a decision about Manny's firing, that he'd announced it two days after Manny had filed for disability, which meant he could still get paid, and that under a new state law, what was supposed to have been an independent investigation into Dontre Hamilton's death had been done by former Milwaukee police officers. On the other side, the police union members were furious that Flynn would even consider suspending Officer Manny, never mind firing him, for doing what union president Mike Cravello said any reasonable officer would do in that situation. When the situation created the necessity for the use of the deadly force, P.O. Manny did what he had to, certainly would have rather not have had to, certainly would have rather not have had to. We are grateful he survived. I am 100% confident that a certain standing board of tragedy. We are saddened by the loss of Mr. Hamilton. We have compassion for the family. I have prayed for peace for the Hamilton family. Let the police dig your people behind. There was one thing both sides could agree on. They both wanted Chief Flynn gone. Dontre Hamilton supporters had issued a demand for his resignation, and the union had recently held a no-confidence vote, where 99% of the cops who showed up had voted against the chief. At one point during the public comments, Chief Flynn began to look down at his lap. He was checking his phone. People shouted at him, saying how dare he, saying he was being insensitive. After the meeting, in the lobby of the senior center, as Flynn was on his way out, he addressed it with a scrum of reporters. Well, I was on my phone, and yes, that's true. I was following developments with a five-year-old little girl sitting on her dad's lap who just got shot in the head by a drive-by shooting. And if some of the people here gave a good goddamn about the victimization of people in this community by crime, I take some of their invective more seriously. The greatest racial disparity in the city of Milwaukee is getting shot and killed. Hello. 80% of my homicide victims every year are African-American. 80% of our aggravated assault victims are African-American. 80% of our shooting victims who survived their shooting are African-American. Now, they know all about the last three people that have been killed by the Milwaukee Police Department over the course of the last several years. There's not one of them can name last, one of the last three homicide victims we've had in this city. Now, there's room for everybody to participate in fixing this police department, and I'm not pretending we're without sin. But this community's at risk, all right. And it's not because men and women in blue risk their lives protecting it. It's at risk because we have large numbers of high-capacity, quality firearms in the hands of remorseless criminals who don't care who they shoot. Now, I'm leaving here to go to that scene. And I take it personally, okay? We're going up there, and there's a bunch of cops processing a scene of a dead kid. They're the ones that are going to take the risks of their lives to try to clean this thing up. All right? We're responsible for the things we get wrong and we take action. We've arrested cops, we've fired cops, and so on. But when you start getting yelled at for reading the updates of the kid that gets shot, yeah, you take it personal, okay? Now, no offense, but I'm going up there now.
If you're going to repair the relationship between African Americans and the police, at least the way Chief Flynn is trying to, it's going to happen in the course of thousands of encounters between cops and black residents. Thousands of encounters that need to go well. And even if they do, each one still only brings you one small step closer to building trust. It's a game of inches. Right now, according to that University of Wisconsin survey, 63% of black Milwaukeeans say they're satisfied with police, versus 83% of white Milwaukeeans. Remember Trina, the woman whose neighbor shot at her and her boyfriend? On paper, her case looks like a success for the Milwaukee police. They arrested the shooter, confiscated the gun, and on top of that, they helped Trina out, offered to stand guard while Trina and her boyfriend moved out of the apartment building that day to make sure the neighbor's cousins didn't do anything to them. Trina thanked the officers before they left. And still, when we talked about if she trusted the Milwaukee PD, she said, I don't really. It's, it's, it's a 50-50 chance, you know what I'm saying? 50-50. 50-50. 50-50 chance of what? Like... Sometimes they help you, sometimes they would, you know what I'm saying? That was the grace of God that they, you know what I'm saying, that they fought that gun. But Sometimes they'll help you and sometimes they won't? Yeah. They won't. Trina's not the only black Milwaukeean who said something like this to me. I asked one woman what she thought of the Milwaukee PD, and she put it like this. You just don't know what to expect. That stayed with me. She wasn't saying all cops are racist or the whole force is corrupt. She was saying something much more measured, that the police are unpredictable. Which means, at least this woman felt, that when you have an interaction with a cop, you can never be sure what you're going to get. Brian Reed is one of the producers of our program. Ben Calhoun helped to produce that story. Next week, some cities where policing is so different from Milwaukee in the second week of our series. I think I'm right. You think I'm wrong. And that's the reason why we just can't get along but no more. We don't see eye to eye no the program is produced today by Brian Reed with Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey Walt, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Robin Semi, and Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producer, Julie Snyder. Editing by Joe Lovell. Production help from Simon Adler. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our office manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Elna Baker scouts stories for our show. Research help from Michelle Harris, Christopher Switala, and Ben Anastas. Music up from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Latoya Dennis and Anne Elise Hensel at member station WUWN, John Diedrich, Ben Poston, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Sam Walker, Dolores Jones-Brown, Solange Franklin, Bill Healy, Jason Britt, Mark Phillips, Dana Kurtz, and Michael Puente at WBEZ. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, he finally met a few of our listeners at a WBEZ event, and I don't know what he was thinking. They were very different from what he expected. I see families, people pushing their babies. It shocked me. I was in shock. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with part two of our series on policing and more stories of This American Life. I'm gonna have to let you go. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>